0: Open the Word of God with me to the 10th chapter of Romans. Amen. We just sang, Peace and joy shall now attend thee. All thy warfare now be past. And that is the message of the gospel that comes to God's elect, that peace and joy may now attend them. Their warfare is past. They no longer need to be struggling to pay for their own sins whether it be praying the rosary in the Roman Catholic Church and performing penance, or whether it be bringing animal sacrifices to the altar in Jerusalem because you are a Jew, peace and joy shall now attend. enter thou into thy rest. Right. The gospel is able to say to all those who believe, You are blessed, my dear brethren, because Paul's desire in his heart and Paul's prayer to God has been realized in your life. Though he prayed for elect Israelites, you have received the benefit that was so dear to him to seek for them. And that is to believe the gospel. And not to stumble over that stumbling stone. Or to trip over that rock of offense. Christ Jesus. And to you that believe, he is precious. 1 Peter chapter 2. And to them which don't believe, he is a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling, and they are disobedient even whereunto they were also appointed. We are very blessed. Oh, Lord, peace and joy shall now attend us. Our warfare is past. I'm not talking about warfare with someone like Charlie in Southeast Asia. I'm not talking about warfare with Germans in Europe. Sixty years ago, I'm speaking about warfare against death, sin, the devil, and hell itself. All thy warfare now be passed. Thank you, Lord. When we die, we sleep in Jesus. And we plant our bodies. Because without planting a seed, you can't get a new plant. And so we plant the seed of our bodies, and it comes forth with a brand new body. Oh, Lord, hear us as we look into thy word. Let me briefly review the ninth chapter with you very quickly. In verses 1 through 5 of Romans 9, our beloved brother Paul gently, softly, introduced a hard doctrine for his Jews in the audience, the Israelites that would hear this, read this, by telling them how much sorrow he had for them, and how dear they were and what great blessings they had from God. And so for five verses, we have an, a quite incredible and remarkable introduction to Romans 9 through 11, where some hard doctrine will be brought forth against Israel. That was the introduction, verses 1 through 5. And that salutation, introduction, preface ended with an amen. Verse 6 declared the doctrine. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. There was an election and a reprobation within the nation of Israel. Election means that God chose some of them. Reprobation means that God rejected the rest. The word reprobate means rejected. The word reprobation is the act or process of rejecting. And so we have both right there because they are not all spiritual or elect Israel, which are of national Israel or however you want to look at that phrase, it's showing that there's a superset of the nation and a subset of the elect within the nation. And God made the difference. And that was hard for an Israelite to hear because Israelites assumed and presumed that because Abraham was their father and their birth certificate said they descended from the patriarchs, that they were all saved, and they were all going to go to heaven. Wrong. Paul declares the doctrine in verse 6. He illustrates it in verses 7 through 13 by appealing to two family situations in and among the patriarchs themselves. Abraham had eight sons, but only one was the son of promise, and his name was Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons by one conception. Jacob and Esau, God. Hated Esau and loved Jacob. Right. And so, for these verses, the doctrine is illustrated. Then the apostle takes up a defense of it in case you might think or someone might criticize it for not being fair. He says in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Did, did God do something wrong in making a difference like this in the families of the patriarchs? God forbid. And he goes to prove the doctrine of election and to prove the doctrine of reprobation from theology. And that is, theology is the science of God. The study of God himself. And so we study God himself, that he wills to show mercy and compassion on whom he will. And whom he will, he hardens, verse 18. And he did so with Pharaoh, verse 17. And he's the potter and we are the clay, verse 21 and 22. 22. And he is in such a position over us that we don't even have the right to question him. Verse 20 Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? The answer to that is, No, he shouldn't, because he's the potter and we are the clay. And then in that long question of verses twenty-two through twenty-four, he is declaring a doctrine that God has chosen to show His wrath and His power on the vessels of dishonor, which He calls in verse 22 the vessels of wrath, because they will be the recipients of His wrath by His choice. And then verse 23, He has vessels of honor called their vessels of mercy, on which He has chosen to show His mercy. And they were afore prepared into glory, They're going to spend eternity in the glory of heaven. And they were prepared for that. As Jesus would say in the gospel of Matthew, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For those that end up in heaven, the place and the people were prepared and appointed to heaven from before the foundation of the world. Verses 25 through 29 are proving the doctrine from scripture. And so the Apostle quotes four passages of Scripture, two from Hosea, two from Isaiah, proving that there was an election and a reprobation in times past, and that if Jews had read their Bibles, they wouldn't be objecting so much to what he had said through the 24th verse. And then in verses 30 through 33, he brings a conclusion to what's been taught so far, and that is what response has there been to the Gospel? By elect Gentiles... And elect Israelites, elect Gentiles that had really never sought to find righteousness with God, are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Israelites, who were seeking to make righteousness with God by their ceremonial worship of Moses' religion, didn't attain to it because they stumbled over that stumbling stone, Christ Jesus. As I read to you earlier as we opened this assembly... In 1 Corinthians 1, it tells us the Jews require a sign. But God didn't give them the sign they wanted. God gave them Christ crucified. And they stumbled over him. And so we come to the 10th chapter. And I read to you verses 1 through 5. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. The rule of the Old Testament is do and live. You know, the New Testament is done and live because Jesus did it for us. But the Old Testament is horrible. Do and live, and no one can do it. The 718 commandments of the law of Moses were just about 800 too many. For the people of God to be able to keep perfectly. And if you missed even one, you were guilty of all, according to James 2.10. And so Moses describeth that righteousness in the fifth verse, that you've got to be doing, doing, doing without fail in order to obtain righteousness. The poor Jews that thought they could establish righteousness by the law. And Paul is saying, listen, I want to tell them the truth that Christ is the end of the law. He fulfilled it all. God has made us righteous by his righteousness. And our sins he put on Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is the nature of justification. But he said, this category of Jews that I'm dealing with are ignorant of God's righteousness in verse 3. And that word ignorant is very important for you to understand what salvation we're dealing with here. And verse 2, he says that they have some zeal, And he bears them record. And he wouldn't be bearing them record for some foolish, ceremonial, vain, whitewashed, hypocritical zeal. He is referencing the elect of God and their zeal toward God, but not according to knowledge. They do not know the truth. And do you know what? The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, was one of them. Elect of God, full of zeal. Oh, no one with more zeal than Saul of Tarsus. He did everything he could, as he told Agrippa. I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth, because he was stumbling over that stumbling stone. And he found Christ the rock, a rock of offense to him. Paul was once in that category. But 1 Timothy chapter 1 tells us, God had mercy upon me because of my unbelief. But he counted Paul faithful in putting him into the ministry. 1 Timothy 1, which tells us that Saul of Tarsus was an elect and regenerate child of God before meeting Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He just hadn't been taught yet. He was kicking against the pricks. He saw Stephen in Acts chapters 6 and 7 with his face shining like an angel, preach a perfect sermon, and he kept the coats of the men who threw the stones that broke the body of Stephen and sent him to his eternal reward. Saul of Tarsus did that. He was kicking against the pricks. He heard a sermon come out of Stephen's mouth that no man could gainsay. He had a wisdom that was not earthly. And he, re- he rebelled against it. He went and got letters of authority from the high priest in Jerusalem that he could go to Damascus. And if he could find any of that way, what does that way mean? You and me. It means Christians. He would put them into prison. He caused men to blaspheme. He approved them being put to death. He put them into prison. He took their assets away from them because he was an enemy of Jesus Christ through ignorance and unbelief. But God had mercy upon him. And God picked that Saul of Tarsus up. His legs were still churning with zeal. Picked him up and said, you're going to go serve me now. And he put him back down the opposite way. And he just took off. It wasn't really the opposite way because he went on into Damascus. You know, I mentioned this before, but I'm mentioning it again because I want you to remember that Paul had a very personal, empathetic, spirit toward other elect Israelites that were worshiping ignorantly. He went on into Damascus where Ananias met with him, gave him some meat so that he could get strength, baptized him, gave him his sight back, and where did he go? Straight to the synagogue. And what did he do there? With those letters of authority tucked in his pocket, he preached Christ and him crucified. He, under, he understood Exactly the dilemma. Romans chapter 10 and verse 1 is often abused. For those of you, and for me, that came from an Arminian background, this is one of the top five texts for missionary endeavors, to save the lost. And when Arminians speak about saving the lost, they mean getting those who are not elect, elect. Because it's conditional election. You're not really elect until you believe on Jesus. It's getting them justified because you're not justified until you invite Jesus into your heart. It's getting them born again because you're not born again until you exercise faith. If you will take your fleshly self and exercise faith, then God will regenerate you and give you a new spirit. And we understand the flesh can do nothing to please God, and it will never do anything to please God. But when they look at this verse and they see the word saved, an Arminian has only one idea of saved. It means not to go to hell when you die, but instead to go to heaven. And when they look at the word Israel, they can only think of one Israel. It's the one that flies the white flag with the blue star of David. It's all they can think about. Even though they should have arrived at Romans 10.1 by having read Romans 8 and 9. They should have, but they don't. They love sound bites. They love short phrases and combination of words that they don't spend the time to decipher and give the sense of them, which we must do and we will do. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. My heart's desire. Paul has, and he has described this in the ninth chapter, as great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. That was his heart's burden. There's been no one in the Bible, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that had a burden for souls like the Apostle Paul. However, his heart's desire should not cause us to miss the point here and to overstate it. His heart's desire matched up and was equal to his labors and what he endured. And 2 Timothy 2.10 tells us, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There's an also there, meaning there's two things under consideration. And there is a width in that verse. Let me show it to you. I'm quoting it, and I'm looking at your dazed eyes, and maybe we should take a look at it in your Bible. 2 Timothy 2:10, so that you won't forget this. Paul's heart's desire is no greater, and it's no less, than his actual labors and what he endured for the gospel's sake. And what was the object of his labors in the gospel, And what was the object of his endurance? under great opposition and persecution. 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore, because the word of God is not bound, as verse 9 tells us, therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. Paul's heart's desire and his prayer to God cannot be larger than the elect. Because why would he desire, and why would he pray for something that he wouldn't labor for it? They're equal. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, and that with is along with eternal glory. Who has guaranteed your glorification? Who guaranteed the glorification of all God's elect? God did through Jesus Christ. He elected and predestinated before the world began. He justified in the cross. He regenerates in time. And he glorifies at the second coming of Christ. And we shall be in eternal glory forever with him. But there's another salvation. And it's the gospel salvation of hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ. And believing on him. And finding him to be the fulfillment and the end of the law for righteousness. And that is what Paul did for the elect that they could learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. And before I finish this morning, I'm going to list some of the categories of benefits you get from hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, even though God, in a separate transaction and transactions, called the operations of God, elected you, predestinated you, adopted you, justified you, regenerated you, and will glorify you. And your glorification is so sure in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, the apostle could put it in the past tense. Right. Because it's as good as done, because the purpose of God is behind it. Amen. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes. As an Arminian, I never heard this text used at any missionary conference. And neither have you. They don't use this verse. Because if you've got this verse, then you've got God already electing and choosing men to eternal life. And Paul's role is very different than adding some names to the book of life. Very different. But there is still a salvation in the gospel. Look at the ignorance that's back there in Romans 10. They don't have the knowledge of Jesus Christ that he's already paid for their sins. They're taking these animals down and sacrificing them, as Hebrews would tell us, can never take away sins. But there's only a remembrance of sins made every year. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with blood for himself and for the people. And they would put the sins of the nation on the head of the scapegoat. And a fit man would lead him far out into the wilderness, And then they would do it again the next year. And they would do it again the next year because there were still sins to put on the scapegoat's head. But there are no sins in Christ Jesus. He was made sin for us and He took sin away. Do we still sin? Yes, we still sin. Does He chasten us for them? Yes, He does as a loving Father. But we will never again face any penal punishment or penal threats for any of them. They're gone. And that is glorious news. It's called glad tidings of good things in Romans ten fifteen, which is what Paul wanted to take to God's elect. And he labored for God's elect. So when it says, my heart's desire and prayer to God, he was desiring and praying for this group of people called God's elect. Let's come back to Romans 10. Romans 10. It is impossible that Paul is desiring for the non-elect to will and to run to get God's mercy. Now remember, we've read Romans 9 before we got to Romans 10. So we have the unfortunate, I speak as a fool, blessing of knowing what Paul's talking about in chapter 10 because we've read 8 and 9 and believed them. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, verse 15 of chapter 9 tells us. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that desireth, nor of him that prayeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The apostle Paul was not desiring nor praying for God to have mercy on those he had purposed not to have mercy. Paul was not desiring that vessels of wrath would become vessels of mercy by him boosting them from one inventory into the other. And it's a travesty of Scripture interpretation to dive into Romans 10.1 and put your sense upon it without looking at the context leading up to it. Aren't we supposed to read books from the left to the right? Is that too deep for Arminians? Romans 10.1, it's a shame. That we have to spend time on something so simple. God has guaranteed eternal glory through the surety Christ Jesus. He said so in the last 12 verses of chapter 8. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. He that spared in His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? There's nothing left for God's elect in that glorious chain of God's operations of grace called foreknowledge, predestination, justification, calling, and glorification. But there is something left outside that chain. And it is to hear the news of the glad tidings of what Jesus has done for the elect. For them to live in this world with all those things either done or certain for them, done meaning all the things that happened before they heard the gospel, and certain the things that are going to follow after, but will surely follow after, there is something else, and that is to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Paul endured all things for the elect's sake, he did not seek to add to the elect. His purpose was to help them obtain gospel salvation, which is what we call conversion. It is separate from regeneration. It is separate from justification. Jesus would tell Peter there on the night before the night of his trial and and the night before his crucifixion, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Conversion is a lifelong process of educational instruction coming to us and the conforming of our lives to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Conversion is to convert something from one form and fashion to another. God has saved us. But we hear the gospel and it tells us what Jesus did for us and what we can do now for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an educational, it takes our whole lives. And none of us are going to achieve it before we meet him. That's why we're still going to need glorification. But conversion is education because it gives us knowledge that verse 2 says these elect Israelites didn't have. It saves us from ignorance that verse 3 tells us they did have. So it's educational. It's instructive and then it tells us how to live. This is what Paul wanted for these elect Israelites. God guarantees eternal life. John chapter 10 and verse 26 tells us, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. The sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ are not made sheep by believing on Christ. They're made sheep by God the Father giving them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, so that we were made the sheep and put into the pasture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when the shepherd speaks, and he sends his ministers to speak, we hear and we believe. That is the order, and it's not reversed. And so Paul has brought a conclusion to the end of chapter 9, that there were some elect Israelites that were stumbling over Christ, just like he had. And his heart's desire and his prayer to God For them was that they might be saved. And his salvation that he's referring to is their conversion. Their educational enlightenment. They're they're coming to the knowledge of the fact that they have been saved by the work of Christ. And it was his prayer. Note, It's his desire. And it's his prayer. So that this salvation in verse 1 of chapter 10 is an uncertain outcome. The number of those saved is uncertain. Of course, it's certain with God, but it's not certain with Paul. But Paul could tell you some things that were absolutely certain, that every single one of God's elect would be glorified and would be in heaven, and Jesus Christ would lose none of them, not a single one of them. But this is uncertain. This is something he's desiring. This is something he's praying for. And this is something that he's laboring for, but it's uncertain. Look at chapter 11. We're going to have to deal with this for two chapters. God's elect and why some of God's elect among the Israelites didn't believe the gospel. And yet, even though they didn't believe the gospel, there was still the opportunity that they could. And so Paul used every means at his disposal to get some of them to believe. You say, does he really say some of them? Uh Uh-huh. 11.14. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh. This is Romans 11.14. When he says, my flesh, who's he referring to? Gentiles or Israelites? Israelites. If by any means. Is there something Paul wouldn't do for them? He would do anything he could. If by any means I may provoke to emulation. What's emulation? Envy. Envy and jealousy that leads to copying. Emulation is the desire to equal or to exceed another person by any measure. It's a sin for Christians, except in matters of holiness and godliness. We should not want to exceed our brethren in things natural or carnal. That isn't our goal. We pray God's blessing on them and we help them achieve those blessings. When it comes to spiritual things, we want to be the very best that we can be. But emulation, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, I will do anything I can, the apostle says in this verse. I will do anything I can if I might bring some jealousy into the minds of some of the elect Israelites and might save some of them. It's an uncertain thing, but it's a thing yet possible. And so the apostle is having this prayer in his heart's desire here in Romans 10, 1, for them. And the reason I'm making this emphasis right now is because eternal glorification in heaven is certain. Not a single one will be lost. There is no some of them will be saved. All of the elect will be saved. Every single one of them. But this is a some of them situation because it's gospel salvation. More to come. I hope you already are seeing some things flop into place. Some of you have heard this before. Some of you already know this. But I want even you establishing it so that you can teach it or defend it. But I hope that others of you are thinking, You're right. Gospel salvation is an uncertain thing. Because Paul told Timothy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. Those two things, your personal life as a minister, your doctrinal life as a teacher. For in so doing thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. See, there's a salvation dependent upon ministerial faithfulness, and when a minister isn't faithful, people are lost. Not out of the book of life, not from eternal glory, but from the salvation which is in Christ Jesus of living in joyful, restful, peaceful fellowship with Him. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul had argued in no uncertain terms that eternal glory was God's sovereign choice. Chapter 8 and the 12 verses that end that chapter he had declared and illustrated and proved God's sovereign election of his children in such terms, in Romans chapter 9, that there is no room for doubt or uncertainty that they would all be saved and the rest could not be saved. Because they're vessels of wrath. There is not the slightest possibility Paul prayed against the potter's will and works. Not a. And so we divide the word of truth. And here we go. I do not like being different. But if God has called us to be different, we will be different. Last night, before I retired, after devotions with Sherry, going over these passages and talking about them and the burden of having to take a position on a verse that is held by less than 1% of 1% of those that call themselves Christians is frightening. But I believe it was also frightening for a man named Noah to preach for 120 years that something called rain was going to come when they had never seen it before. And to build a boat in his backyard that was 450 feet long. He was probably a little nervous stepping out himself. But he and his family were glad that he did. And I hope that you're glad with me because we'll do it for the Lord's sake. When we look at Romans 10.1... We don't get all excited about reaching for our wallets and writing a check to that little nation over there at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. We don't reach for the phone to call our congressman to say sell them a few more F-16s because we don't believe it's talking about national Israel or natural Israel at all. It's not talking about the fleshly descendants of Abraham looked only as fleshly descendants but God's elect among them. And that is how we understand this verse, and how could we understand it any other way? What was Romans 9 in front of it for? But to tell us, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Well, if they are not all Israel which are of Israel, which Israel is he praying for? Which Israel can be saved? Elect Israel can be saved. If elect Israel can be saved, but not all of them will be saved, but Paul's trying to save some of them, and he's got a heart's desire and a prayer to God for something that is uncertain, it must be a different salvation than election that leads to glorification. It it has to be conversion. You say, I've got the point. Thank you. Good. How and why would Paul pray for vessels of wrath that God was enduring unto the day of judgment that were fitted to destruction. If they were fitted to destruction and they're called vessels of wrath, what's Paul praying for them? That they'll jump into a tub of water and get that clay softened up again and he'll reform them? How and why would he pray for those fitted to destruction and unable to believe the gospel? How and why would he pray against decrees of God that he had listed from Old Testament times in verses 25 through 29. He has four examples of God's election and reprobation. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. What Israel? There's two questions that you have to ask as we proceed from Romans 9 into chapters 10 and 11. Two questions. It's really quite simple. What Israel is under consideration and what salvation is under consideration? And as soon as you answer those two, Romans 10 and Romans 11 are not very difficult. And that is why the time is being spent right now on one verse for you to understand that when we approach these chapters, we better approach them in the light of Romans chapter 9, that there are two Israels that we need to divide between, and there's at least five salvations that we need to divide and figure out which Israel and which salvation. And once we do that, we can progress, and we will. And we're doing that right now. What is real? Paul said they are not all Israel which are of Israel. He declared it, he illustrated it, he proved it, he confirmed it, and he applied it. That's all of Romans 9 right there. That there was an election and a reprobation within Israel. And that some of those elect still stumbled over that stumbling stone, Christ Jesus. And that's how he ended up Romans chapter 9. Having made the distinction between elect Israel and national Israel... Paul would not have tried to save those that God had purposed not to save. Right. From the start, Paul has identified an elect Israel distinct from national Israel, and he's following them in his argument, and we should follow them in his argument. Because it's established in chapter 9. All the different ways that I've shown you in chapter 9. But look at the context following. He tells us that he's not trying to get vessels of wrath, changed to vessels of mercy, he's trying to get those that already have a zeal of God educated. Verse 2, for I bear them record. The apostle Paul, a man with the gift of discerning of spirits and a prophet in his own right, bore them record that they have a zeal of God. If this zeal of God is subjective genitive, meaning that it's God's zeal put inside them, they're obviously elect. If this is objective genitive, meaning that God is the object of their zeal, but that zeal is great enough for Paul to bear record of it, they're obviously elect. So I don't care which way you run the zeal of God. The little preposition of doesn't prove either. You have to prove it by the context. I would tend to go with God being the object of their zeal, but their zeal toward God being such that the apostle would bear record of it. When Jesus, John, and Paul are speaking of reprobate Israelites, they don't commend their zeal. They condemn their hypocrisy. They condemn their whitewashed appearance outwardly, and inwardly they're full of dead men's bones. And there's many verses that can be raised to prove that point. If this is merely national Israel's vain ceremonial worship, Then Paul made much out of something that John and Jesus condemned. And Paul in other places condemned it as well. What is real? The elect Israel, Proven to us in chapter 9. Proven to us that Paul's desiring a salvation for them. And we're told a little bit about that salvation. And that's the point we're going to move into now. That it's God's elect and they need to be saved with the salvation that Paul endured all things for when it came to the elect. Paul wanted the elect to have the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could rest from their labors and know that the work had been finished at the cross and their eternal life was certain by the surety Christ Jesus that they might be saved. The salvation here cannot be election, justification, regeneration, redemption, adoption, propitiation, any of those shuns. Because those are all the operations of God through Jesus Christ for his elect. This has got to be something where they are involved in hearing. And you know Romans 10 is going to take us through the steps. How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach except they be sent? And how should... I started out one step too late. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach except they be sent? So there's this great operation of God in sending preachers to tell God's elect of what Jesus Christ has done for them so that they can rest from their labors and not go about to establish their own righteousness by something as pitiful as Moses' law. And Moses' law is pitiful. The New Testament says it's beggarly, it's weak, it's carnal. And it's like old pajamas. It's time to throw them away. That's the last verse of Hebrews chapter 8. That they might be saved. Nowhere in Scripture do we read of a heart's desire or prayer to God for the election of anyone. But we certainly do hear and read many prayers that I might speak it boldly as I ought to speak, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak, that an effectual door of utterance will be given unto me. And we are told other things, and it's time for us to look at some of those other things as we bring the, the last point that I want to make this morning is what salvation is under consideration. It's the salvation which is in Christ Jesus that we call conversion. It's the practical phase of salvation. We believe, by the testimony of Scripture, and it's been preached in great detail on other occasions, that in eternity past, called the eternal phase of salvation, God elected and predestinated a certain group of humanity to eternal life. They're called the elect of God. They're the children of God. He did that before the world began. It's the eternal phase of salvation. The legal phase of salvation is getting rid of their sin from a judicial standpoint because God is absolutely and perfectly holy and just. And so though he has chosen some to be saved and to spend eternity with him as joint heirs with Christ, he cannot save them he cannot forgive them, and he cannot have them in heaven if there's still a legal conviction pending against them. And there is until Jesus died on the cross. And we call that the legal phase of salvation because Jesus legally got rid of our sins. But there's still a problem. Though God has chosen them to be saved and Jesus Christ has paid the price for them to be saved, they still have a nature that is totally contrary to heaven. Because we have a nature that loves ourselves, we have a nature that loves sin. We have a nature that is at enmity against God. We are dead in trespasses and sins, and so God the Holy Spirit regenerates us. We were generated the first time by our first two parent by our parents we generated again by being born again, by having new life given to us the second time. It's called being quickened, which is to give us life so that we have a new man that is created in righteousness and true holiness and is a perfect companion for the God of heaven for eternity. And that is what being born again is all about, is getting that new nature that's a perfect companion for God. It makes us partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter chapter 1. And that is the vital phase of salvation because it gives us the vital traits of a child of God. When someone has been in a car accident and the paramedics, when, when they arrive, check for vital signs. What is vital referred to? It means, are they alive or are they dead? Right. Vital signs. And so the, the phase of salvation that we call the vital phase is putting life within us. Then we believe. That man that's been chosen, justified by Christ at the cross, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, hears the gospel. He hears the gospel, and he's got it inside. It's in his mouth. It's in his heart. We're going to read this in just a few verses when we get later, farther into Romans chapter 10. And so the preaching of the gospel brings it into activity, brings it forth. I believe that. I will confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because it's in our mouth. Who put it there? God put it there. It's, it's Him that worked in us both to will and to do of God's good pleasure. It's, it's God that did this for us. And then, of course, we'll be glorified in the final phase of salvation because we're waiting for that phase of salvation. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 13 and Romans chapter 8, to wit, the redemption of our bodies. Right. God is coming back through Jesus Christ to resurrect our dead bodies. This, is, this used to be called... When men used to study the Bible and study theology and study soteriology, soteriology is the science of salvation. Instead of theology being the science of God, it was called the Ordo Salutis. That was a Latin expression for the order of salvation. They, they knew that there was an order to these different operations of God and of grace. Most of them didn't get it all sorted out because they wanted to keep some measure of sacramentalism in there somewhere. We don't have a problem with sacramentalism when it comes to salvation because we don't think it has anything to do with Christianity at all. So we don't need to stick it in anywhere. It's called the Ordo Salutis. You know, we don't need to remember that term. It doesn't matter. It just means the order of salvation, that the Bible describes things done before the foundation of the world, and the Bible describes things not yet done. Should we confuse the two and jam them together and call it salvation? Because they're both called being saved? No. We're not going to do that. Gospel conversion is the educational process by which a person learns about Jesus Christ, what He's done for us, and what we can do for Him. It's a lifelong matter of conforming ourselves to Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wanted for elect Israelites. He testified about them that they had a zeal of God, but they did not know about God's righteousness. Verse 2, they were ignorant of Jesus Christ's righteousness provided for us by God's choice. And they were continuing to go about trying to establish their own, verse 3. Verse 4, the wonderful news that Jesus Christ has satisfied the righteous demands of God's law and perfectly fulfilled them for us so that we are clothed in his righteousness with something they had not submitted themselves to because they didn't know about it yet. So Paul's great heart's desire and prayer to God for these elect Israelites that hadn't been converted yet was to convert them. If by any means he might provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. First Corinthians 9.22 Most foolishly assume that the word save only has one meaning. Get out of hell and go to heaven. Or get born again. They just jumble it all together. But the Bible is full of salvations. Last week, when I preached to you from Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, and Jonah said, Salvation is of the Lord. Was he talking about getting out of hell? (laughs) Yeah, the hell of the whale's belly, but not out of the lake of fire. There's so many deliverances and salvations in the Bible that don't even refer to the lake of fire. The Old Testament, the New Testament, there's many of them, and I'm going to skip over them. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, James 5.15. Is that out of hell? No, okay, okay. There's, there's so many of those. Acts 2.40, with many other words that Peter testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Is that saving out of the lake of fire? No, it's saving from fire that was going to come on earth by the Roman armies. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> There is a salvation. This is, how, this is why we rightly divide the word of truth. Amen. Paul would not have told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth unless there were divisions to be made. That is so simple. But then we must not only divide, we must rightly divide. And that is what I ask you to pray for your pastor in, that we will always rightly divide. When we come to Romans 10.1, look at what we are doing with the verse. We are looking at that verse and saying... I need to make two divisions here. I need to divide Israel because Paul, in the preceding chapter, has said, they are not all Israel which are of Israel, meaning that there's two Israels. So I am dividing and making a choice by context of what is said about Israel as to whether they are national Israel or elect Israel. And we're making a division By order of the God of heaven through Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. Second, we divide the salvation that Paul desired and prayed for, for Israel. Because we see at least five phases of salvation in the Bible. Which one of them was Paul desiring and praying? And we come to the conclusion, Paul desired and prayed for the elect Israelites... That they might be converted to the knowledge of the truth. That they would no longer be held in the bondage of Moses' law. But that they could find the rest for their souls in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we believe and we do it God's way. And the Bible shows us many divisions of the word save. First 1 Corinthians 15.2 By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Can a person believe the gospel and be saved and then lose their salvation because their memory can no longer remember what they had been taught? Yes, because I didn't qualify my salvation yet. Can you lose your salvation? Can you lose your place in the book of life? Not a chance. Can you lose your hope? and confidence, joy, and peace in the resurrection of the dead if you forget everything Paul told you about the resurrection of the dead and start listening to the false teachers that were at Corinth that said, there is no resurrection of the dead. Can you lose your hope? Why would verse 19 tell us, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So by keeping Paul's preaching about the resurrection in your memory, you could save yourself from misery. Because, there's a bumper sticker that says life is a... But I get in trouble when I say that. And even though I want to be like John the Baptist and Elijah and just say it, you know, life is miserable. I'm Put it in those terms, okay? Life is miserable if we forget Paul's teaching about the resurrection of the dead. But it's the word saved right there. By which also ye are saved if ye keep in memory. Is eternal life and your place in the book of life and your deliverance from the lake of fire dependent on your memory? I hope not, or my mother is not in heaven. Because by the time God took her out of this world, she couldn't remember how to swallow, let alone the things preached from God's word to her in her 78 years of life. Look at 1 Timothy 4.16. I've already quoted this one to you, but I want you to see it. It's the word saved, and I'm showing you why we do what we do with the Bible and why everyone else ought to do it as well with us. We are not special by anything innate of ourselves. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. Psalm 100 tells us that. 1 Timothy 4.16. Do you think that Paul took Timothy and ordained him to the work of the gospel ministry without him being saved eternally? Or did Paul know that Timothy was one of God's elect, justified by Christ, regenerated by the Spirit, and is certainly going to be glorified? Obviously. But he still writes them this way in verse 16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Those are two things a minister has to do. Continue in them. That's why it's a plural pronoun. Both things, personal life, doctrinal teaching. For in doing this, taking heed to both things, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. This is basic. But do you know there's hardly anybody that believes this in the whole wide world? They do not rightly divide the word of truth about the word saved. This is a salvation that Timothy was dependent upon Timothy and was uncertain about the future because it depended on his faithfulness as a minister. If he was faithful, he could save himself from being led astray with a carnal life and by doctrinal error. And if he would keep both things safe for himself, he could save all those that hurt him. They wouldn't be led down the primrose path of carnal Christianity or down the primrose path of doctrinal heresy. There it is. There's the word saved right there. Used in a sense very different from how everyone wants to apply it. Look at James chapter 5. James chapter 5. This is an important point. You should know how to defend the Word of God. It's not enough for me just to tell you what it is, because I want to show you enough that you can search the Scriptures with me, and together we will know this is the truth of Romans chapter 10. And though we are in a very small minority, so is Noah, so is the Lord Jesus Christ, so is the Apostle Paul, and we'll be thankful for God counting us worthy to be in a very small minority A very small remnant, as Isaiah 1-9 would describe the people of God. In the days of King Ahab and Elijah, with millions of people in the nation of Israel, God said he had 7,000 reserved. That's a very small minority of a very small nation among all the peoples of the earth. Let's not be ashamed of it. It It causes me trepidation when I go to the word of God, and I pray that you'll pray for me. And some might think I like being different. You don't know me at all. But if God says be different, I want to be different for Him because I want to be on His side. If all the rest of you like the other side, I can preach Romans 10 the other way too, but I'm not going to. James 5, look at how the book ends. James is kind of blunt and direct. and He doesn't waste a whole lot of time on salutations and Gentle intermissions. But here's his last two verses. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Do you know how special that verse is to us? That verse right there tells us that we're dealing with a soul, that it can be called a salvation because it is called a salvation, and that it's called conversion, and and it's defined for us. You get out of the way of truth into an error, and somebody brings you back from the way of error back into the truth, and you have converted them. You have changed them from looking at things one way to looking at things the right way again, and you've saved a soul from death, the death of error, the death of no fellowship with God, the death of heresy, the death of believing a lie, and you hide a multitude of sins. Isn't that wonderful? There's the word saved. And so we look at that we say, thank you, Lord. The word saved applies to conversion, of getting someone out of error into truth. In Romans chapter 10, is there someone in error? It's elect Israelites. What's the error? Thinking that they can establish righteous standing before God through Moses' sacrifices. Is there some truth that Paul can lay on them that would be pretty special? (laughs) Peace and joy shall now attend thee. All thy warfare now be passed. The sacred herald cries. And who's the sacred herald in Romans 10? Our brother Paul, you bet he had something good to bring them. No wonder he had a heart's desire and a prayer to God that he saw this zeal of God, that they loved God and they wanted to serve God, and they were diligent in their ignorance of unbelief under the Old Testament system of religion, just like he had been. And he wanted to deliver them from that and rip the shackles off them and show them the truth that Christ had died. And so Hebrews 4 could be realized in their life Therefore, let us enter into rest. There was rest for their souls. Because Christ had done it. It is finished. Do you know what kind of good words those were to a Jew? It is finished. Amen. Very quickly. Why preach the gospel? Do you know that Arminians, Calvinists too, I don't want to get off into that right now. i much been preached on that before. If you... If you pull your key out and you scratch a Calvinist, you're going to find out that your car had once been painted pink. There's an Arminian right there underneath the thin coat of paint. All you've got to do is scratch him a little bit and you'll find out. I appreciate being taught that early on because I was a raving Calvinist, but knew that I didn't have all the answers because Calvinism doesn't have the answers. Right. Calvinism doesn't know what to do with Romans 9, 10, 11. But anyway... You know what they say when they hear what we believe about election and predestination, then why preach the gospel? Why preach about Jesus Christ? If you don't have an angel busy up there getting writers cramped, putting new names in the book of life, what good are you accomplishing? Why preach the gospel that you make the gospel worthless? No, we put the gospel right where it belongs, and it becomes very precious to you that believe He is precious. How does Christ become precious to believers? By having the wonderful things bore by the witness and the record of the water, the blood, and the spirit told to you. Because if it wasn't told to you, you would not know about the water or the blood or the spirit. You would not know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. You would not know the incontrovertibly great mystery of godliness without the gospel. Very quickly, let me tell you these things. I'm sorry that I'll work this in sometime in the future, very soon. The benefits of preaching the gospel to the elect, though it doesn't elect them, justify them, regenerate them, or glorify them, there are enormous benefits. Number one, it saves you from ignorance to true knowledge. After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God with the foolishness of preaching. To save them that believe. Save them to what? The knowledge of the true and living God. Even though he has put a preacher in the sky called the sun and a preacher in the sky called the moon, the preachers in the sky called the stars, men have rejected that knowledge of their creator and made themselves images as Romans 1 taught us. There has to be something more. That's the preaching of the gospel. God hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Mm-hmm. 2 Timothy nine. that's pretty exciting information. Amen. But is now made manifest. That great transaction that took place in eternity is now made manifest. Right. It's now made clear to your view by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you know what we learned from the gospel? About a transaction that took place in eternity. Listen, the world can't even figure out that 6,000 years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. What about before that? We know it. Because it's been brought to light. The gospel doesn't bring life and immortality. God assigned life and immortality to his elect through what Jesus Christ would do for them. The gospel brings life and immortality to light Amen. through the gospel. That's the next verse, Second Timothy 1.10. So number one, the gospel saves the elect from ignorance to truth by giving them the knowledge of the universe about them, the God of heaven, what they can do for him, what he's done for them, and what the future has in store. And we could just go on and on and on and fill out the gospel. Number two, the gospel saves the elect to personal assurance Of eternal life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. 1 John 5 13. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Would you like to get a letter from the Apostle Paul that told you, knowing, sister, beloved, your election of God? Would you hold that to your chest and thank God for that? Coming from the Thessalonians, got that. Everybody's read about it for 2,000 years. The gospel comes, in. can we fit ourselves into First Thessalonians yes. 1, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God? Yep. By the work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope. Yes. Got Third: the gospel saves the elect to knowing what God requires of them. The angel appeared to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and verse six and said, "Send a Joppa for one Peter." and he shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Because there's things that we can do to please God, and without the gospel telling us what they are, we w- how long would it take Cornelius to think up the doctrine of baptism? I, the centurion, with my servants and soldiers watching, get down in a public bath, and this fisherman from Galilee dunks me under water. How long would it take him to think that one up? Oh, thank you, Lord, for the doctrine of baptism. Are you thinking of 1 John 5, 6 through 8 right now? The water, the blood, and the spirit. You wouldn't know about it. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2, I praise you that you keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. We wouldn't know how to have a church. We wouldn't know what to do if it hadn't been for the gospel bringing these things to us. Number four, the gospel saves the elect to fellowship with God and men. 1 John chapter 1 John said that he wrote that you might have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son and that your joy might be full. It's fellowship. Five, the gospel saves the elect from God's judgment for sin. Is God's chastening pretty severe? He doesn't use a rod. The rod's for you to use. What does he use in Hebrews chapter 12? A scourge. So my point being, God's chastening is pretty severe. But the Bible comes along, the gospel comes along, bearing the news from the Bible of how we ought to live so that we're not under God's chastening by living in error. We can save ourselves from being weak, sickly, and dying early, as they were at Corinth. God saves the elect, number six, to peace and soul rest. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you can find peace for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Isn't that wonderful? In Hebrews chapter 4, we have God's rest of the Sabbath day mentioned, and then we have the rest of the land of Canaan mentioned, and then Paul says, there remaineth a rest to the people of God. And he's not talking about heaven. Heaven will be a place of rest. It tells us so. But there's a rest here on earth knowing that Christ finished our works. Amen. Peace and soul rest. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you might abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Romans 15, 13. The gospel saves the elect to prosperity and success in life. Where do you want to turn? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And it goes on, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that beareth his... Wonderful. Wonderful. He that will love life and see good days. First Peter, quoted from Psalm 34. Peace and joy in life. Success and prosperity in life. These are blessings that come by the gospel. An elect person, without hearing the gospel, doesn't have those things. That elect, Israel that Paul's dealing with in Romans 10.1 did not have those things. Paul had not had them, but Paul now had them, and Paul wanted to share them with other elect. So he said, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, that they might have the blessing I have of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him today? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ today? Do you know the peace and joy? Do you know the fellowship with God? If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you've let sin Separate between you and your father, and you're under his chastening withdrawal. Paul's prayer and Paul's desire has been realized in us. If it was important enough for Paul to desire it and Paul to pray for it, should we be thankful for it? We have it. Thank you, Lord, not only for saving our souls, but for sending us the gospel that tells us about that and all the other benefits that it includes May God bless each one of us to be thankful for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe it and obey it. Amen. Amen.